Good evening, ladies. How are you? It's good to see you out there. I know we all have pressed to get here this evening, and I thank God for this opportunity to share with you yet another time. My name is Lisa Palmer, and this week we're in week four. It's going by fast, believe it or not. Week four, and our focus this week is the purpose of revival. And we're focusing on Ezekiel chapter 15, chapters 15 through 18. And if you were like I was, I was like, oh my goodness, what in the world is going on here? Very explicit um, scriptures that explain what was going on and who was doing what, when, where, and how, and all of it. So um, Something that we're like, oh my goodness, but unfortunately is still happening today, right? So um, we're going to get started in Ezekiel chapter 15, and some of your translations may say useless vine or an outcast vine, and that was a description of what was used to identify the nation of Israel, But the symbolism we find is talking about a vine, and that was normally referred to the nation of Israel uh, during that time. But instead of them being a fruitful vine, they were found to be useless because of their faithlessness to God. And it was consistent. It wasn't just a one-time deal, but it was ongoing. It was continual. And when you think of a vine, and we know we may have seen a vine, we may not have. I've never been to a vineyard, so some of you that may have been to one for wine tasting, I'm pretty sure it was tasty. Um, But when you think of a vine, and we're not talking communion, but you know, that's another story. We're a climbing or a trailing woody stemmed plant of the grape family. It usually is referred to as a grapevine or a vineyard. And viticulture is the cultivation and harvesting of grapes. And part of that process involves pruning, which is a selective removal of certain parts of a plant to promote growth and the sustainability to that vine. Normally, vineyard grapes are harvested between August and November, so I guess this time of year is like ideal for those that would like to harvest grapes. But unfortunately, Israel, the vine that's talked about in this scripture, was found not to be upright in their lifestyle. In fact, God wanted them to be a representation of his chosen people, an example to the surrounding nations of his holiness. And they were the exact opposite of what he envisioned them to be and what he created them to be. One of God's unchangeable attributes is just. He's a God of justice. We've heard that word. You may or may not have heard that word for him. That's one of his attributes. But when you think about justice, it's virtuous, consistent, innocent, morally right, and correctness. A just God could no longer tolerate unfaithfulness in sinful Israel. There are consequences for sinning, and we all know that. We've dealt with the consequences of sin. We've dealt with God's judgment. But a just God had enough, and his pronounced judgment to them was, I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will set my face against them. 
The vine dresser would no longer protect the vine. The wood of the vine would be thrown into the fire. And there were two deportations of the Israelites. The first took place in 605 BC, and then the second one took place in 597 BC. And then ultimately there was destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. The captives were taken to Babylon, which included both Ezekiel and Daniel. So as the Israelites were burned, based on God's picture that he gave us in the scripture, think about certain areas in your life that need to be pruned or burned or removed so that you can thrive in Christ. What has been your response to that pruning process or that burning process? We must realize that Jesus is the vine. And the author mentions that in the book, she mentions John chapter 15, we had to read that. Um, and this is something that I say literally every day before I get out of the bed, that you are the vine, I am the branch. If I remain in you and you remain in me, I will bear much fruit, but apart from you, I can do nothing. I literally, and I'm not making it up just because we're like, this is something that has really said every day by me. And I just thought about that word abide or remain is mentioned 12 times. So that means God is trying to get our attention, get our ear, abide in me, live in me, let me dwell in you. Apart from him, we can bear no fruit and neither could the Israelites. So we're moving on to Ezekiel chapter 16, and God instructs Ezekiel to explain Jerusalem's ancestry to them. And from what we can see, they had a Hittite mother and an Amorite father. Unfortunately, they were despised, they were thrown out into an open field and received no compassion from their parents. And God saw them in this detestable state that he found them. Bloody is one of the words that he uses um, in his scripture to tell us about the state that they were in. And he speaks to them and he tells them to live. He enabled them to thrive. And then a second time he passes by again and he sees the maturity and he spreads his garment over them, covering them with his love. This act of him covering them represented God's oath and his covenant to Jerusalem that they would become his. In fact, he went into covenant with him. And a covenant is a pact, it's a treaty, it's an alliance or an agreement between two parties of equal or unequal authority. And we experience God's protection under his covenant, his covenant with us is not predicated on our good works, but on his goodness and his faithfulness. And I couldn't help but think of the imagery of a wedding day. If we have some brides in here, I'm not asking how many times you were a bride, but just some <laughs> brides in here. And you know, you wore your white dress and you, you had your jewelry on and you were just so excited to see your groom to finally have that covenant with your husband. But he wasn't the only one in that covenant. God is a part of that covenant as well. 
And God previously made covenant with the Israelites during their enslavement by the Egyptians. And last year we studied the book of Exodus. So that we knew God, we learned him to be a covenant keeping God. And we found that in Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 24. There are representations of the covenant, of different types of covenant in the Old Testament. Noah had a covenant with him and God, and that would be the Noahic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant was with Abraham, and the Davidic covenant was with David. Again, these are covenants that God made with people. And then we also make covenant. We cut covenants with one another, sometimes business deals were seen as cutting a covenant with another person. But we see, based on the scripture, that God washed them with water. He anointed them with oil, clothed them with fine linens. He adorned them with jewelry, and he fed them. Sounds like they they came up in their relationship with God. And that's what he's able to do. He's able to take us to higher levels than we ever could have expected or envisioned. Jerusalem's fame went out among the nations because of their beauty made perfect through God's splendor. God's care for his bride was enough, but the bride's heart remained unrepentant. Jerusalem's new identity evolved into one of a harlot and an adulterer because of their degenerate hearts. And Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And we want to think babies come into the world and they're, you know, pure. But really, you know, unfortunately, God's word tells us we're all born sinners. And the uh, Jerusalem was just that their hearts were not pure and they were unable to come into proper covenant with God because of their hearts. The condition of our hearts speaks volumes. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The blessings that Jerusalem received from God were then given to their idols. They engaged in prostitution with anyone, including the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, much to God's dismay. And I couldn't think of, these people were like the precursors. I don't know if we have any show watchers in here who watches um, the soap operas, if they even still call them that. But, I mean, this group here, they were precursors to people on Young and the Restless, the Bold and the Beautiful, the Housewives of Potomac, New Jersey, Atlanta, all the Housewives, you know. Um, Some Empire watchers in here. Anybody remember Dynasty in Dallas? JR and the crew, you know. So I'm just saying these people had them beat out, okay? I'm just, uh, they far exceeded this, these uh, shows that we watch today, unfortunately. But again, it's still happening today, even though it might not be in your neighborhood or maybe it's behind in the shed and you don't know about it. <laughs> but it's still going on, unfortunately. But God rebuked them, stating... And in all your abominations and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your own blood. They had forgotten where God had delivered them. And they turned to idols instead of turning to God. Unfaithful Jerusalem received judgment 
of the covenant-keeping God. And we see that in verses 35 through 43. As a result of God's judgment, his ultimate desire for Jerusalem we see in verse 41b. I will make you cease playing the harlot and you shall no longer hire lovers. They came to a point where they weren't even willing to receive money. They just freely gave it up. You know what I mean when I say gave it up? Okay. (laughs) God then promises to establish an everlasting covenant. And that everlasting covenant comes through who? Jesus Christ. That's who the everlasting covenant comes through. We must never forget the one who gives us our value and worth. Our identity and security can only be found in him alone. And maybe we should consider ways that we have exalted ourselves and placed more value in the gift more than the covenantal God who gave us the gifts that we have. Have you ever had a prodigal son moment in your Christian journey? Gave up all your worldly possessions to be in a pig pen? What made you cease from sinning? Consider ways you can share with others that God is enough and we don't need to raise up idols to bring us satisfaction. God desires that we have life and have it more abundantly, as he tells us in John chapter 10, verse 10. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit, forfeit his soul, as Matthew 16, 26 tells us? Moving on to Ezekiel chapter 17, we see the despised oath and a breach in covenant. And this is the parable of the eagle and the vine. And this parable represents Judah's breach and covenant with God. And in our books, and I love the way that the author um, gives additional explanation, but on page 130 and 131, she mentions God had released from Judah, had released Judah from their captivity to the Egyptians, making them subject to the Babylonians. So they went from being captives to the Egyptians to being captives of the Babylonians. He had in mind, meaning God had in mind for them to flourish and provided them what they needed to do so. But they did not like God's plan. So they rebelled against God's plan, preferring to go back to their previous captors. We do not like to admit this. We do not like to admit this. But we can do the same thing. God puts us in circumstances, gives us the grace we need to flourish in it. But rather than accept our less than idyllic circumstances, we rebel against him and seek the aid of others or rely on ourselves to change our current status or state. Then when we bring judgment on ourselves due to our rebellion, We blame God for all of it. God is sovereign over all. There is not anyone or anything in your life of which he is not in control. When we fully believe and accept this, we stop seeking alliances with false saviors, trying to regain a sense of control. Any other help is just another captor. We also stop insisting our limited circumstance must make sense to us. 
forgetting God is at work all over the world in ways we cannot see. Instead, our lives become marked with his gracious ability to bear fruit no matter the circumstance. Have you ever heard of the term bloom where you're planted or grow where you're planted? If you haven't, it means wherever situation, wherever environment you find yourself, find a way to grow and bloom, but not apart from God. He'll give you what you need to grow in whatever situation you find yourself. And we see that Zedekiah had rebelled by breaking covenant with King Nebuchadnezzar. And he violated God's covenant with Israel by looking to get help from Egypt. Zedekiah was willing to make an inappropriate alliance to circumvent God's plan. At the end of the day, he said, God, you don't know what you're doing. I know what I'm doing. So I'm going to go back here to what's familiar, what I think is comfortable. I'm going to ignore what you said and do what I want to do. Doesn't work. Those alliances proved costly for Jerusalem. Can you identify inappropriate alliances you have made or are considering making? Have you sought God in prayer and read his word to provide you with guidance? Does the benefit of that alliance outweigh God's perfect plan for you? Have you considered who will be affected by the alliance which you make? Ezekiel acts. Uh, chapter 18, <clears throat> returning to God's insistence that we turn away from sin and turn to him and live. And basically, in a nutshell, repent. We hear that word. That's a church word we've all heard maybe one time or another. But this chapter is insistent, and God wants to make sure it's clear that you can, you have an opportunity to repent. Instead of turning back to God, faithless Israel blames God for punishing them. Imagine your children saying, Mom, it's your fault that I did what I did. It's your fault that I ate the cookie. It's, it's your fault that I got the D in the class or the E. It's your fault that I, have, I missed soccer practice and they didn't put me in the game. It's your fault that I didn't do the chores. It's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. And we say that same thing to God. It's your fault. <laughs> Why did you put me here? We do it, right? We always want to blame the kids, but we're God's children, right? Is there anybody in here maybe who's not a child of God? <laughs> we all put on tantrums when we don't get our way. We do it. We always talk about the kids, those poor kids, they look at us like, mom, dad, come on, you're the problem, okay? I'm just saying. <laughs> but uh, they never took ownership for their sins, which ultimately caused God's judgment. Ownership. Own yours. Own your sin at the end of the day. Their behavior warranted a response by a just God. Their souls and ours belongs to God. And we know this scripture, the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. The person who walks in God's statutes, pardon me, the wages of sin, God states the soul who sins shall die. 
The person who walks in God's statutes and keeps his judgments faithfully shall live. We can do it. You can do it. I can do it. We can do it. No one can bear the guilt of sin committed by another person. Each person is responsible for their own sin and must face God's judgment. Becky's responsible for her sin. Michelle's responsible for her sin. Michelle, uh, Melissa's responsible for her sin. Lynn is responsible for her sin. Shiloh's responsible for her sin. Donna's responsible for her sin. I'm responsible for my sin. And then we each face God's judgment for our individual sins, not our ancestors' sins. Sin is generational. But we're sinning now. We deal with our sin. Our ancestors had to deal with their sin. Our children are going to have to deal with the sins that they commit. And that's one thing that God wanted to get through to them in this chapter as well. Sin is generational. We can submit to the Holy Spirit's power and not repeat the sins of our fathers and mothers. But we have to be intentional. We have to have a made-up mind that I'm not going to carry this sin, whatever that sin is. God urges us to turn from sin and repent so that iniquity will not be our ruin. In Luke chapter 24, verse 47, and the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name, meaning Jesus' name, among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. He wanted to start with his chosen people first. Okay? Repentance, repentance distinguishes the changing of a life to be obedient to God a spiritual or moral change of attitude toward God that results in a change of direction away from sin toward God in obedience. The sinner reorients themselves to God. An outward and an inward expression of repentance is imperative when turning back to God. And I love the Amplified Bible Um, In reading Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, the Amplified Bible says this, Repent, change your inner self and your old way of thinking. Regret past sins. Live your life in a way that proves repentance. Seek God's purpose for your life, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's it in a nutshell. A radical change in our commitment to put off sin and to put on Christ. We're always putting off something, but we're picking something else up. God's saying, put off that sin and put on Christ. Put on a new life in Christ. We are new creatures in Christ Jesus. We say that. We've read it. Now we have to start internalizing and doing it. We're consistently being confronted every day with the decision to turn from our sin and turn to God. Turning from sin for you or for myself, may look like casting off pride. It might look like cease from overeating when faced with stress. It may look like putting away misinformed beliefs about other ethnic groups 
It may be forgiving, learning how to forgive someone who has betrayed you and not harbor resentment and anger. It may be stop overspending and buying the same pair of shoes in 10 different styles. It may be stop with outbursts of uncontrollable anger when you don't get your way or things don't go as you planned. We can cast away our transgressions and get a new heart and a new spirit. We must be intentional. And confession offers us that first step. We're agreeing with God, hey, I, I know I messed up, I dropped the ball. It's not I made a mistake, it's I sinned. I'm calling it what it is. I'm not saying mistake or it was a snafu. I sinned God. It wasn't that person's fault. I dropped the ball. I did it. Then we trust that he will offer forgiveness. He will cleanse us. And his Holy Spirit will teach us and empower us to live godly lives. And we see that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We need to grow up, ladies. We need to turn. We need to repent. And apart from the Holy Spirit, we will be unable to experience radical transformation. We need that Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to help us. Our hearts must be made pure, as the psalmist in 51 tells us, create in me a pure heart. Do you mean it? Do I mean it? Coupled with us laying aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is marked before us or set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We have to look unto Jesus. They didn't have him back then. They had God. They didn't, they, they didn't understand Jesus wasn't a thing then, even though he was. <laughs> we have that luxury now. But God has no pleasure in the death of one who dies. He doesn't take pleasure in that. Therefore, turn and live. Let's live. Let's start living. Let's start living. Let's have prayer. God, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for your power to teach us and indwell us so that we may live lives unto Jesus. We do not get it right. We do not get it right. But you know what's best for us. You're able to turn us around. You're able to take us to higher heights for your glory and our good. So as we go to our class, just help us to um, cast off anything that is not like you, even when we leave this place. It's hard at times, but we know that we have your power within us to live. In Jesus' name, amen.